This week's TribCast is sponsored by Common Cause Texas. Common Cause Texas is a grassroots organization dedicated to building an equitable democracy for all in the Lone Star State. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Hello, hello. I'm Cassie Pollock, state politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. Thank you for tuning in for our conversation today, previewing the upcoming special legislative session that starts tomorrow. I'm joined today by politics reporter James Batagan and demographics reporter Alexa Uda. Alexa is an associate editor and the demographics reporter for the Tribune, where she covers the intersection between politics and race with an emphasis on the state's surging Hispanic population. In 2020, Alexa won an Investigative Reporters and Editors Award for her reporting on Texas's botched voter rolls review. James covered politics for the Dallas Morning News from 2017 until he joined the Tribune this spring. He has reported on immigration, public safety, and voting rights, and he has traveled on assignment to the U.S. Supreme Court and to Houston during Hurricane Harvey. Welcome, everyone, and let's get started. Um, what a day already with uh, the governor's special session agenda being fully revealed and what a day tomorrow is almost certain to be for everyone at TX Ledge. But very quickly, how excited are we for what could be the next 30 days? Scale of one to 10 here with 10 being the most excited. James, go. I'm a five. I'm at a regular five. <laughs> oh no, Alexa. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of shocked by that answer because I'm almost like a negative one. <laughs> Guys, I'm like an eight or nine over here. What? <laughs> okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, one of the main reasons why we're even talking about tomorrow's special session is because of an Abbott priority elections bill that died in the final hours of the regular legislative session after House Democrats walked out of the chamber, broke quorum, and prevented passage of the bill. Since then, though, there's been a lot of chatter about what changes, if any, are going to be made to this bill now that lawmakers have a second go at it. Alexa, as our residential SB7 expert here, uh, what do you think is going to be the starting point on the elections bill? You know, I, I think that's a big question because unlike in the regular le legislative session, we had, you know, two very different priority bills filed in each chamber and that they were very different starting points. This time around, we have this conference committee report, essentially the final version of SB7 that ultimately did not become law. And it's a massive piece of legislation. It includes things from both chamber's version of the bill and also things that were never even considered as part of those debates. And I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being where we start off as opposed to sort of these individual bills, just because obviously that was a bill that the Republicans in both chambers who were at the forefront of this had 
been working on, though there seems to be some disagreements over who was doing what at the end, particularly when it comes to two provisions that they are now walking back. Uh, but I think the conference committee report is probably the starting point minus those two provisions. Uh, the One of them was lowering the standard to overturn elections in court. I don't think we'll see that one probably come back, or at least not in that version. And the other one was setting voting lim- hour limits to Sunday early voting, uh, which had obviously raised a lot of concerns in terms of its impact on souls to the polls efforts focused on, on Black churchgoers. And, you know, we've seen folks retreat from that provision. And yesterday, the lieutenant governor, you know, pretty clearly said that that wouldn't be part of the Senate's proposal. But I would imagine we we're going to be looking at this pretty massive bill as a starting point. That's where I'd put my money. Where you put your money? Okay, got it. Um, I do have a reader question that I want to weave in here. Um, but first, I want to ask um, a strategy question about Democrats. Just given that, given how we saw SB seven or the elections bill die during the regular. Um, there's obviously been a lot, a lot of talk and Democrats have been having these ongoing conversation, uh, conversations about what the caucus's strategy is going to be in a special and whether members are going to be open to leaving the state at some point to break quorum for a second time uh, and block passage of the elections bills. Um, of course, there's different members who want to go about this different ways. Some want to stay back and negotiate. Others want to wait and see. And then some are ready to, to leave the state tomorrow and not really look back until the special is over and done with. Um, how do you see that dynamic playing out first among Dems as a caucus and then maybe as it relates to Republicans and the Republican heads of the two chambers, Alexa? Yeah, I, I don't anticipate a bunch of empty desks tomorrow. I think that most, if not all, the Democrats will be back just because there is such an existing division still in what strategy to take here. And, you know, breaking quorum, it's not just an extraordinary measure. It takes a lot of work, right? You've got to get 51 people out of the chamber, possibly out of the state, depending on sort of the political situation. And you've got to figure out who's going to take care of their families, right? Who is going to be able to take off work for that long for those lawmakers who, who still have sort of regular day jobs. So I think at this point, we probably aren't starting tomorrow with with a quorum break. Um, a lot of lawmakers are already in town and there have been committee hearings these last two days uh, that many of them have been at already. But I think the question in terms of their strategy is, what is the end game here, right? Because obviously they don't have the numbers to ultimately defeat this. They're going to have to come back for a redistricting special session, which I don't think Democrats are going to want to skip altogether, given sort of the stakes of those maps for them as well. But, you know, is is the end goal to block this version? Is the end goal to force a vote on the, the legislature funding that the governor vetoed so that it's not hanging over their heads? Is the end goal to push for a process in which they feel that they are heard a bit more as, as this bill is being compiled? And I don't think that is clear yet. And I think in terms of how that plays into, you know, what Republican leaders are looking at, you know, the lieutenant governor has indicated that he basically wants his version of whatever this bill ends up looking like to get through. And I'm not sure there's any sort of negotiating room there. I think the more the more interesting thing might be in the House in terms of how much room are Democrats given to kind of voice their concerns, try to change things in the bill, and how much is that held up through the eventual conference committee process again, where they're, the things that they are happy with that maybe keep them in town end up getting through to the sort of the final product of all of this. 
Right. Yeah, I think it'll also be interesting to see how, you know, specifically the elections bill negotiations, if we can call them that, end up playing out just like in the more broad context with, um, you know, we've also been talking a lot, of, a lot over the past month with Article 10 funding, which is, is um, you know, uh, the, the, the section of the state budget that funds the legislature. Um, you know, are Democrats, is, is there going to be a point for Democrats where they have to basically come make a call here, right? Stay back and work with Republicans or, or work towards some version of an elections bill, and, you know, to keep funding on the, for the legislature on the table? Or, you know, are they willing to, you know, again, just in the broader context here, leave the state and potentially jeopardize that or at least delay uh, whatever sort of negotiation would look like for uh, the, the legislature funding? Yeah, I think I think that there are so many things on the table, and I guess I, we got the the call for the the session this morning, obviously, and and it includes more things than sort of the priority voting bill and the priority bail bill that the governor ha- had sort of pointed at the end of the session as kind of the big reasoning to come back, and I there there are so many things on the table with all those other things. I I think the negotiation process is sort of really unclear at this point. Yeah. I don't know if, if y'all agree with that. I think I do. I think it's, you know, a big thing here is going to be the, the, the timing of everything, right? If the legislature is gaveling in Thursday morning at 10 a.m., uh, you know, are we going to start seeing committee hearings meet over the weekend or is that going to get pushed back into next week? I don't know. What do you think, James? Well, I think that the Senate will probably do what it did during the regular session and get mm-hmm. to work right away. Um, I'm not clear what house committees will look like. Um, They had a little bit less of an appetite, I think, for uh, some of the rest of the uh, bills on the call, like, you know, basically another SB 29, the transgender youth sports ban, uh, critical race theory, they had less of an appetite for. Um, And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how these things go on that end. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention is uh, when you all were talking about the elections bill, you know, the speaker told you, Cassie, I think he would rather see it split up into a bunch of little tiny bills rather than a big omnibus one. Right. Um, and so that may be a place where there's a split between the two chambers um, because the speaker really thinks like, you know, what's, what's there, you know, if there's a problem with a big omnibus, uh, then the Democrats can tank it, you know, um, and then and then we're done. And then we don't we'll have to come back for another special before the, the redistricting. I don't know. Um, so I don't know what that's going to actually end up looking like. But that's kind of interesting to me that he mentioned that in terms of like, oh, let's maybe break it up into um, smaller bills. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, we barely got the call today. <laughs> um, so I guess the lawmakers will also be looking at this list and thinking about which which ones they want to do and which ones they don't want to do for the Democrats. Like you guys were mentioning, I think Article 10 really is the issue for them. They want to get their staffers funded. They want to get all these other public servants funded uh, before they get out of there. Um so, I mean, another thing that I found interesting was, you know, in 2017, last time we had the special session, you know, we had that joke going around the Capitol. It was like sunset and die because I think they had said, like, let's do the sunset bell first and then let's just get out of here. Right. And I think that's how the call was made. Like, you got to get the sunset thing done first and then you got and then you can move on to all your other bills that you want. This one, I, I, I don't see anything that says, like, we've got to get elections or bail reform done first. It's just kind of a free for all, uh, which does give some lawmakers who potentially have like other priorities other than the elections and bail reform bills, 
you know, room to maneuver. Right. Uh, I have one last question on the elections bill, and it's mainly just because uh, almost all of our reader questions that or audience questions that came in uh, were about that. And Alexa, this one's for you. James, please jump in after. It's more of a policy question, and it's from uh, Manuel. Uh, Manuel. Um, he wants to know how Senate Bill 7 would have impacted Hispanic voters, particularly non-English dominant speakers. Um, Alexa, I know that you wrote about this during the regular session when SB7 was, uh, you know, going through obviously multiple changes. Maybe let's just work off of, you know, the the final version of the bill as it died uh, in the House that night. And, uh, you know, of course, with the caveat that an entirely different bill could get filed for the special. Yeah, I think when you look at the final product, there's a lot in it. But they had removed some of the provisions that I think had raised sort of a a higher level of alarm for voting rights advocates. They had removed a provision to let poll watchers record people who get help. And there was concern that how would that affect both voters with disabilities and voters who don't speak English who get help through the voting process. In Texas, that means a lot of Hispanic people, right? There was another provision that was specific to the polling place formula distribution in the big counties, where obviously there is a larger share of Hispanic voters than than in the smaller counties. And we did an analysis on that and found that it really would have affected areas of these large counties with higher shares of voters of color, where they would have moved polling places away from those areas and into areas with higher shares of white voters. So both of those things were not part of the final product. But I think that the question with a lot of these restrictions is what do they do to compound barriers to access? Right. There are things that in the bill that were specific to Harris County's 24 hour voting, um, their extended hours. And those are efforts that the county said were particularly popular among voters of color, including Hispanic voters, you know, shift workers who couldn't vote during the normal seven to seven hours. And I think and those things are hard to measure. Right. Like, how do you measure who doesn't vote because they're not able to because of a new rule. That's very different than sort of measuring turnout. And so, you know, I those two provisions that were not in the final bill, I think are still on the table. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw versions of those come back during the special session. So the the landscape of how this could particularly affect Hispanic voters still remains pretty unsettled going into the, the special session. Right. And we're starting from a blank slate, you know, so exactly. like Alexa saying, you know, we may be dealing with a completely different thing than the final version of the bill that we were dealing with at the end of the regular session, which is also kind of crazy to follow because we had very little time to look at it. Uh, so, yeah, starting from a blank slate, all those things probably back on the table, including the polling poll distribution, like polling poll distribution. <laughs> I'm, I'm messing that up here. Um, but but that but that provision, uh, I think is one of the most concerning for sure because of the same reasons that Alexa said. I mean, in the larger uh, counties, obviously there's going to be larger populations. And in those populations, there are a lot more Hispanics than there are in other smaller counties. Um, so that could be making a comeback. We could be facing some of the same issues that we faced early on in the regular. Right, right. And, uh, you know, this is 
mainly just I'm asking you guys to guess here, but are we expecting the elections bill to go through the House uh, on the House side? Are we expecting that to go through again the House Elections Committee? I'm only asking that because we saw the speaker yesterday announce the creation of a new select committee, an entirely new group of uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, on this committee. We're going to have Trent Ashby, a, a Lufkin Republican, chairing it, and um, Sinfrenia Thompson, um, a Houston Democrat, longest serving uh, woman in the legislature to serve as vice chair. Um, is that going to be a potential avenue for at least members on the House side to, to take up this issue? And maybe that's going to be where we see these hour-long committee hours long committee hearings during a special yeah my read on the creation of that was that the idea was to move the sort of very um you know hotly contested bills through a panel that you know includes some more veteran lawmakers it's a very different makeup than the house elections committee and and you know to be to be honest that the way the voting bill went through that house elections committee it was pretty chaotic. Um, I right. think, you know, there were, it was objectively clumsy at some points. There was one hearing on one iteration that had to be canceled because, and everyone who had come to testify had to go home because of the way uh, State Representative Briscoe Kane, who chairs the committee, abruptly ended that that hearing in the middle of it, right? There were, um, what they were trying to get SB7 passed through, they were doing this sort of last minute swap. And, you know, members on the committee, including Republican members, were really taken aback by what was happening. I don't, I'm not sure that everyone had been clued in on what the maneuver was. Democrats were objecting to it. Uh, Representative Kane was speaking over them and saying there were no objections. You know, it, it was sort of this uh, very chaotic process that I think if you think of the long game and the idea that this legislation is going to end up in federal court, those are things that Republicans don't probably don't want on the record in terms of how this bill was passed. And so I think moving it over to this new committee possibly creates, the poss you know, you, you move away from procedures that people found questionable during the regular session. I think the question is, does that bring down the temperature a little bit in terms of the debate around the bill, just given the makeup of the panel? Uh, but, I, but I think we are, you know, we're probably still headed toward a very, very long marathon public hearing on whatever legislation goes through that committee. Yeah. yeah, Alexa, and you and I both said in those uh, uh, voter ID and redistricting hearings uh, over the last decade, and we heard many times Democratic lawmakers saying, you know, we, we had no idea what the process was. There was no process. We didn't follow the regular order of the process. Um, and you could definitely, I mean, that's the first thing I was thinking whenever I would see Chairman Kane handling the elections committee and kind of talking over lawmakers, not allowing senior lawmakers to participate in the committee and ask questions, um, deliberately, like just ignore their uh, comments. Um, and then also just kind of ram through SB seven as HB six. Um, I just, I just was like, wow, in federal court, this is not going to look very nice for them. Uh, I don't know actually what this new committee is for. One thing that I would beg of our state officials is to just give us some clarity on what actually is going to happen. I think Texans deserve that. Um, and that goes for, you know, the governor, the lieutenant governor and the speaker. I mean, if they're just going to create this committee, at least say like what, what's in charge of it, like, because constitutional rights is could be a whole lot of things. Right. Um, I think that, uh, you know, constitutional rights, when I'm just looking at the call here, social media censorship could go down that way. Elections bill could go down that way. Um, the but, Article 10 
uh, arguably could. could right, right, right. So I, I just wish that they would give us some clarity. We do not have that clarity. Um, but yeah, I mean, one, one question I had is, you know, speaking of Chairman Briscoe Kane as the chairman of the elections committee, that he was a first time chairman. Technically, he had that select committee on driver's license, but they didn't really meet because of the pandemic. So he was a first time chairman. Um, I think that had a lot to do with um how that committee ran. Trent Ashby, I'm not sure. Do you know, Cassie, if he's been a chairman before? I'm not sure that he has, but he's definitely a guy who works alongside a lot of folks, you know, is is kind of a bipartisan guy, works with the Democrats, works with the rural Republicans, you know, can build some consensus. So that's an interesting pick there. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head about chairmanships. I know that, you know, obviously him and, and Phelan, the current speaker, were, uh, you know, it, competing against one another. It, it pretty much came down to them, uh, to those two in the, in the speaker's race that we saw play out after uh, the November elections. Um, but since then, I think by all appearances, the two have patched it up. And if you're looking for any sort of proof of that, look no further than the speaker tapping uh, Ashby to carry that big broadband expansion bill that, that passed you know, with little to no debate during the regular session. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm taking, I'm taking that uh, chairmanship appointment of, of Ashby for the select committee is just a sign of the speaker's confidence in him as a lawmaker. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing to, my final thing I'll say about that is I'm not sure that it's going to get moved, the, that the elections bill is, will be moved over to that committee. Um, but one thing to say, even if it, you know, it has more senior lawmakers, more people who can get along and, you know, do the negotiating, it's still got a Republican majority. So I think if if we follow the, the logic to its next step of, okay, the elections bill is going to go to that committee, then we've got to still say it's still a majority Republican committee right. they're going to do what they want basically we're going to get an elections bill out of that committee if it goes there um and it's you know something that ultimately the democrats will probably still vote no for probably will tell their constituents is better than what we would have gotten in the regular session mm-hmm. but it's it's not going to be good for them it's not going to be something they support it's going to be an elections bill that is more restrictive i think and now a quick word from our sponsors texas state technical college Texas State Technical College has Texas covered. With 10 campuses across the state, and now with 20 new 100% online programs, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. Find out more at tstc.edu. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas is proud to support this conversation. The elections bill, of course, is just one of the many items that Abbott has uh, on his special session agenda, again, that he released this morning. Um, and of course, you know, this is all said and presented with, um, you know, the, the caveat that Abbott could at any point add more items to the special session agenda as uh, this, this 30-day time period that we're working with gets underway. Um, Abbott, you know, I think my big takeaway from uh, the, this morning's announcement, and James, Alex, I want y'all to weigh in here, was just that it was chock full of, of red meat issues that are going to play favorably to, uh, you know, Abbott's Republican base. We have items related to bail, border security, social media censorship, transgender students playing school sports, and critical race theory. Uh, James, what's your take on this special session agenda, and how do you think the governor is heading into this special session? You know, who's with him, who's against him at the legislature? Oh, I think it's uh, it's a it's definitely as you described, it's a red meat uh, jam packed agenda. We've got 
elections bill, border security, social media, uh, SB 29, transgender youth sports ban, abortion inducing drugs is on the call, critical race theory. And there are some sort of middle of the line items like bail reform could be a middle of the line item. I think that's an issue that, you know, Jolie McCullough has covered us for us really, really well, showing that both sides of the political spectrum want that uh, changed. Uh, but what we've seen is the proposals is a much more far right shift uh, on the bill on what they want to do with bill reform and specifically what the governor wants. It's, it's a more tough on crime approach. Um, Article 10 funding is, again, another thing of our own making, really. We, that doesn't necessarily need to be on the call, but it will be on the call because the governor decided that way. Family violence prevention, that is a thing to teach like school kids about you know, date, date violence and family violence. Um, the legislature had actually passed a, a bill on that, and the governor vetoed it because it didn't have, it, have an opt-out option for parents. Um, so again, another thing of our own making. The thir- 13th check thing is actual policymaking that is happening here. Um, so GASP, uh, it, that's for TRS. Um, and that bill actually didn't really move uh, during the regular session. I, I think it got caught up in calendars in the House and hadn't even moved over from the Senate. So right. that's an interesting one to see there. I think that's that one's like for people who want to say, well, the governor is a moderate, wants to do some policy making, but is pushed by the the right and by Lieutenant Governor Patrick over to the right. I think that's one that they'll, people will look at. And then the appropriations bill, that has property taxes, foster care system, and cybersecurity. Policy, 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 right? And property taxes are things that Republicans love to talk about and I think um, have said that they want to fix. Not really something that we covered during the regular. Foster care system has uh, perennially been a thorn in the side of the Texas government. We just can't figure out how to run that system. And cybersecurity, a rising threat, uh, as we just saw, recently with Russian hackers um, doing nationwide hacks. Um, But those ones are all lumped in there on that last appropriations item. Um, So definitely red meat heavy. Um, I think you point out correctly that he's looking at, you know, re-election next year um, and that, you know, there's Don Huffines and Alan West running against him. They are very far right in terms of where the Republican Party is and will probably push the primary that way. One thing to note, uh, Cassie, uh, your your subject that you were a master of, taxpayer-funded lobbying, not on here. And I think Don Huffines mm-hmm. slammed him for that. So that I, I did think that was interesting. Yeah, what do you make of that? Him not including something, you know, I believe it was what Senate Bill Ten, that uh, the taxpayer-funded lobbying bill. Um, the Senate passed what I think many would consider a stronger version of the bill, and then when it hit the House, it was modified. Um, I think. Do you think yeah, go ahead. I think it's definitely interesting. I think uh, right. I noted I, I I noted it right away that it wasn't on the call. It's I think it's an SREC priority. I think it's a Republican Party priority, if I remember correctly, too. Mm-hmm. I think what we saw also during the session, which is the reason why it didn't get out, is that there is divide even between the Republican Party, particularly right. with rural Republicans, um, about how broadly they want to characterize taxpayer-funded lobbying, quote-unquote. For some of these groups uh, and for some of these cities and rural counties, um, what what some people call lobbyists are like associations that help them get their health care and insurance for like government employees and do it at a much cheaper rate and also save them millions of dollars um, here at the legislature through what they would call un- like killing unfunded mandates. Um, and the Republicans in the House just would not budge to 
what uh, Representative Middleton and I think the Senate wanted to get through. So I think that shows that there's divides there within the Republican caucus and that Mm -hmm. perhaps the governor just didn't want to get caught up in the middle of that. So he can just completely avoid that and say, you're not going to question my conservative bona fides because, look, we've got a red red meat jam-packed session. And and I think he can sort of maneuver around it and say, forget about that. Look at all these other things that I've got done. Right. Alexa, uh, what's your take or what's your sense of where the big three are at? Just, you know, in terms of relationships, where people stand, what the dynamic is between the three heading into the special. Um, My very surface level take here is that we're on a lot of the same footing that we ended the regular session with. Of course, there was uh, some last minute 11th hour drama with the bail and elections bills, the Article 10 funding. And the week after that, we saw the big three, the speaker, the lieutenant governor and the governor kind of take uh, different approaches on the elections bill, when a special should be called, what should be included in the special session call. Um, do you think that any of this is, has changed much since uh, the legislature gaveled out at the end of May? Uh, probably not. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about the 2017 special session and the dynamics going into that one. Obviously, I think from publicly, the relationship between at least the lieutenant governor and then House Speaker Joe Strauss was very much frayed. And the question was, what side would Governor Greg Abbott pick, right? And if you think back to that call, the the session was essentially because of the bathroom bill and the sunset bill that had been torpedoed in hopes of bringing back a special session for the bathroom bill. And I remember the governor ended up adding a bunch of things to that call too, right? It was sort of packed with things, even though most of it, most of the attention ended up falling on the bathroom bill anyway. And so fast forward to this session, you know, I I don't think that publicly they appear to be as divided, but but I do wonder if the governor is in a similar position in terms of having to choose between the lieutenant governor and now House Speaker Dade Phelan. You know, when you think about the politics of it, he's probably leaning towards someone like the lieutenant governor. He's, you know, obviously a conservative firebrand. The governor has two primary challengers and I think has been sort of catering to that more conservative flank of his party in in recent months as these sort of challengers have emerged. And, And I think that's the question for this special session, at least for me, is does he end up siding with one of these leaders over the other? And what does that mean for the legislation, because if you think of just the election bill, you know, to your point that that the speaker might want individual bills versus one big bill, I'm not sure that the lieutenant governor is going to going to be for that. And I think the question comes down to, well, what is the governor willing to sign into law? What version of this does he want to see? And you know, whose side will he eventually take in in deciding that? Yeah, I'll take a uh, different tack oh, on that if oh, I could, because I, I think that. Um, I think the governor and the speaker are actually much more on the same page. They're much more similar politically. They have the same approach. They're more like, uh, I wouldn't say classical Republicans, but I would say like more of the center-right Republicans, whereas the lieutenant governor is really to the far right of the party, right? Um, So I think usually they would be on the same page. Now, we have to remember again that the elections bill and the bail reform bill uh, both basically died there in the House on that last night. So I don't think that the governor owes the speaker any favors. And there, there, there is, you know, wasn't a whole lot of it, but he, he was a little bit ticked off. You could see it in the comments that, that he made after the session that he wasn't happy with the way the House had sort of botched that elections bill, I think. And so 
I don't actually think the pressure is on the governor. I think the most pressure is really on Speaker Phelan because this is this this call is pretty you know attuned to the lieutenant governor and obviously to the governor because he made the call. Um, it's kind of a harder line to toe for the speaker. We saw the Democrats come out with that um, letter on Monday, I believe, saying, "Hey, uh, you know, basically take us seriously, respect us, defend us." Uh, as the Speaker of the House, defend the independence of this chamber um, and talking about the Article 10 funding. So I think he's got the most pressure. He's got to come back next session and try to become Speaker again. And if you've got unhappy Democrats, which made up part of his coalition, um, you know, I just I just think it's a little bit harder for him to navigate those waters. Right. Uh, Thank you both so much for your time. We are out of time today. Um, Thank you, Alexa, James, for joining us. Um, To everyone watching, I hope you are more after, especially after listening to this conversation, you're more with me on the scale of eight to nine as opposed to Alexa. (laughs) Bump them up. (laughs) Negative one uh, or James's five on the excitement scale for the special. Uh, For more coverage from the Tribune, visit texastribune.org and get the latest updates about the people and policies shaping the future of Texas with our weekly newsletter at trib.it slash brief dash weekly. Be sure to join us for the Tribune Festival. We'll, We'll look ahead to what's next in politics, policy, and beyond starting September 20th through the 25th. Join us online and in Austin by buying tickets at festival.texastribune.org. Thank you, everyone, and see you tomorrow.